0: This is client side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Jamie Clarecorn is a partner at Bain & Company. He is a member of Bain Technology and Customer Practices. Jamie leads Bain's B2B commercial excellence practice in the Americas, leads Bain's go-to-market transformation and sales place system solutions globally, and is one of the developers of the Elements of Value. He works with CEOs and executives teams during periods of transformational change with a focus on strategy, growth, and organizational effectiveness. He has worked across technology, telecoms, industrials, healthcare, and business services, to name a few. Jamie Clarkhorn welcome to ClientSide.
1: Thanks for having me, Nathan. Very happy to be here.
0: So your background and experience is super fascinating. You're working with CEOs of some of the biggest companies around the world today to improve organizational effectiveness, help them grow. Tell us a little bit more about what the common challenges have been of the leaders that you're speaking to and how have they changed over the last 18 months or so? Great question. In some ways,
1: they haven't changed at all. The, the challenge statement remains, Almost precisely the same, which is how do I get great product market fit? How do I hit that raw customer need, and and how do I get out there in a in a way that customers can can get in front of my product and and experience it? The, however, the as we all know, with with COVID and with so many other things that have challenged our world in the last couple of years, um, there are a lot of new new dynamics. And you know, as we think about that, w- what we see is that the the traditional scales have really fundamentally shifted, and so the things that used to constrain our businesses time, distance, capital, uh, really a lot of those have completely changed. And so, you know, what we've seen in COVID is that uh, we kind of had five years of cloud acceleration and technology acceleration in a year. And so that has, for, for anyone that, that lives in those worlds or who sells into those worlds, their, their five-year plans became one-year plans all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And so they had to, to reinvent those plans on the fly. Uh, we see massive capital deployment. And if you look at some of the, 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 the funds out there like, um, like Tiger or the Vision Fund at SoftBank or just you know, the, the unfettered pace and, and rate of, of capital deployment, there's so much money being spent right now. And, and that's going both into uh, new innovation as well as digitization of old businesses. And so there's just a lot of degrees of freedom to play with things. And, and the rules change and the, mm. and the, uh, com- the competitive set changes quickly. Distance stopped being meaningful in many ways. Uh, you know, we've really seen that in our business, and all of our clients have seen that. That, that, um, and, and you and I are on the phone right now. We're we're staring at each other across an ocean, but on a sure. video screen. And I'm I'm sitting here in Chicago this morning. So, physical distance is, is almost gone. And then really the, the the scorecards are changing quite rapidly. And so, um, you know, there's profits still matter. Like, let's make no mistake about that. But I think the the human capital base is really screaming for purpose, and and we're seeing purpose in um, sustainability. We're seeing it in, in DEI. We're seeing uh, people sort of evaluating their lives and saying, "Is this the job I want? Is this the life I want?" And so there's, it's just a very dynamic world we're living in right now, and and the rules of the game are, are, are changing. Um, so that's that's exciting. Um, mm. The scorecards are different though. I don't think anyone knows what what good looks like in in that world. I was talking to uh, uh, some of my colleagues at Salesforce and actually maybe I picked this up for an article, but um, you know, they, when when COVID happened, they, they set a goal and said, let's do a million minutes of zoom calls. Hmm. They had no idea if that was the right measure or not. And it turns out that it was the wrong measure. They hit 5 million. Hmm. And so I just think our ability to know what good looks like on these new measures isn't, isn't calibrated yet. And so there's just so much dislocation. Um, and, and then in my world, which is really about, growth and go to market and sort of how do you, how do you get that right innovation and how do you get it to market quickly? Um, you know, everyone, everyone became an inside seller, <laughs> every, all sales became virtual. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's just, we, we just don't know, we just know how to do it yet. And then we're learning quickly. We're, we're, we're becoming experts on that. So that's, that's some of the, some of those have been hard. I think one of the things that's been super exciting though is that um, people's ability to change has gotten better and not that they're necessarily more skilled at it, but they've just had to. And so, um, and and we'll probably talk about this more today because we do so much work around organizational alignment and getting organizations to change, but there was no choice but to change. Mm. And so it's kind of like that, that first time you go to physical therapy after you, you know, broke a, broke a, a bone and, and get out of the cast. It's like that first time you move those muscles again, it's, it's like, Oh, that hurts, but you did it. Right. right? <laughs> and so I think there's sort of been that great first PT experience that everyone in every job everywhere has sure. had. which is, boy, we, we did change. We've proven to ourselves we can change. So, hmm. so how do we do it again? Um, and, and, and so the question shifts from, can we change? Well, we know that the answer is, do we want to? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, and that's the challenge for leaders is to is to cast a vision in this more purposeful world where you can get you can get a vision that employees wake up every day and say, I want to do that, that I'm excited about doing that. That's how I want to spend my energy. That's how I want to spend my days. And so that's really I think the crux now is is how do you how do you create that compelling vision for for people to, to rally around and, and get excited about and, and show up to work every day um, and show up in their lives every day and, and be excited about.
0: Hmm. And as you say, part of your role is really helping CEOs define what their go-to-market strategy should look like, what their growth strategy should look like. A big challenge for that, as you've just articulated, is that no one really knows what best or good looks like at the moment in this new world. And also a hard part of that is defining how the rest of the organization should align around this new vision or this new growth strategy. How best in your mind from the leaders that you speak to, how do the best organizations in the world do that? How do they catalyze an organization to align around a common vision and a common growth strategy?
1: Yeah. And and boy, these aren't, these aren't new things. These are, these are old skills. Um, but, but they're sort of perennially relevant. Um, so I'm sitting in Chicago. I said that there was a, a great architect here named uh, Daniel Burnham. And he said, uh, make no small plans for they have no ability to, to stir the blood of, of men. And you would <laughs> probably say men and women in this in this current age. But, right. you know, I, I still think that's it. You need to give people a sense of purpose of where we're going and a, and a better vision of tomorrow. And I think the best leaders do that. And they and they do it in a way that's compelling and they do it in a way that's accessible. Um, when I say accessible, it's. Um, it's accessible for all types of learning and for all all types of people and for how they envision themselves, and so you need to sort of tell that story in, in lots of different ways and bring it to life through lots of different lots of different mediums uh, at the same time when you introduce that new change and I was sitting with a, a CEO and an executive team yesterday kind of uh, with the strategy to reshape a, a global business that's been around for a hundred years, you know that change is going to cause disruption and People, people experience change as disruption, um, whether it's good, good change or bad change, sure. you're, you're moving their cheese and right. uh, people don't like their cheese moved. And right. So um, we, we kind of approach change at Bain through, through the lens of, of that disruption itself and, and the psychology behind that. And the psychology would say that in a, in a period of, of disruption, people's ability to process information goes down by about 80% their attention spans drop to maybe 10 to 12 minutes at, at best hmm. and their ability to retain information drops to maybe three pieces of information. And so really getting crisp on that message and getting repetitive on that message and, and letting people anchor on a clear, simple message. I think that's important. The other piece that we're really seeing is authenticity. And so I had a great example of a, a leader A couple weeks ago um, she was introducing some change to her organization i think it was a couple hundred people and kind of got through the presentation and uh, someone raised their hand and said but how are we going to do you know this piece x and uh she she looked at her and said i don't i don't know the answer but we're going to figure it out together and we're going to keep talking about it until we solve it how does that sound and that sounded great to the to the employee and there was a lot of a lot of head nodding in the room and i think the more authentic leaders can be around some of that vulnerability and and reality of change and and not being the person that has all the answers but being the person that can provide confidence that the team will get to the answers and and that they'll work together on it Um, that authenticity is is really really important in in leading change Um, so that that's part of it i guess the last piece maybe is you know, we think of resistance as being bad and resistance just means that people are engaging. And so, you know, that would be a challenge to leaders to, to view resistance as good and to view resistance as people wrestling with the ideas and wrestling, wrestling with the change. Um, I had a client, they had, they had become cynical, they'd become cynical of changes and, and, and they'd had a strategy every three years, every five years, there was a new strategy and a, a new bold vision. And um, someone on the team had coined this phrase called the inverse productivity principle, which basically stated that the best thing you could do was to ignore the strategy because it was going to (laughs) fail and you would waste all your energy spending time on it. Right. And so boy, when that level of jadedness and cynicism has, has dropped in, <laughs> you know, so no one resisted it. They're like, okay, well, this tool, this tool will go away. Sure. And uh, that's a bad sign. That means you've, you've lost the patient at the beginning. So, you know, how do you get that resistance? The resistance is good.
0: Really interesting. Let's talk about the elements of, of value. You co-authored the B2B elements of value in 2018, which factored in the personal considerations of business customers. There were 40 of them in total you separated them into five different categories. Some of them were rational things. Some of them were emotional or more subjective. Tell us for the listener that isn't aware what the most surprising revelations were from your research and define, if you could, what the elements of value seek to achieve.
1: Thanks for bringing that up. This is a, this is a fun piece of work we did. And I, first of all, would be remiss if I didn't um, acknowledge Eric Olmquist, who's a, a a colleague of mine in Boston recently retired, and he he really is is the one who originated the elements of value, and I, I helped him adapt it for the for the B two B environment. But it, it starts with this premise that um, a value prop is not this amorphous, intangible thing that's not measurable. It it, it starts with the premise that says. Um, a value proposition and, and value is actually discrete. It's measurable. It has components. Those components are consistent over time. And um, what what great brands do, what great value propositions do is they kind of assemble those elements in different ways and, and key in on different pieces of that. And so that's what the, the framework does. It's, you know, we developed it uh, using lots and lots and lots of (laughs) primary research Hmm. uh, hundreds of thousands of of, uh, sample survey size and also using meta studies of past work we've done on value proposition design and market research to say you know what were the what were the elements that showed up over and over and over as people were saying boy this is my this is why i buy this product this is why I, i buy from this company and, and so that, that that is those are the elements of value. They're they're uh, typed along a, a hierarchy of needs, very much inspired by uh, Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. Hmm. And they kind of give us the they're the Legos. They're the Legos of of which you can build a value prop. And so you know we've got red Legos and yellow Legos and green yellow Legos right. and little Legos and big Legos. And, sure. and together you can you can make them. The I think the surprising thing, particularly in the B two B side, was how clearly they showed that, um, that, that decisions are not as rational as we think they are, so, or, or maybe better said they're rational in a different way. Mm. Um, there's this school of economic thought that says humans are sort of perfect uh, economic trade-off machines. And, um, mm. and a lot of the work we've seen in behavioral economics has kind of disproven that.
0: Mm. Um, Thaler, Tversky, Kahneman, good on the list.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. And what we see there is that they, people make really good trade-off decisions. They just make them on criteria that might not appear rational on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> or might not appear rational if you don't understand the criteria they're using.
0: Give us an example.
1: Well, right. So um, in the elements of value, what we see is, or in B2B forever, um, it was technology was sold on feeds and speeds. And that's a very rational argument. That's an engineer-to-engineer argument um saying you know this is this is my spec sheet this is the competitor spec sheet and then it all came down to price Hmm. and and what we saw is there's this whole like that's just the very bottom of the pyramid that's 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 the 101 part of the value prop right but as you as you move up on that pyramid there's all these things around being easy to do business with um as a company company to company and and expertise and responsiveness and how will you integrate together and how stable you are as a vendor and how much quality you bring and, and how will you simplify the world? Hmm. And then, and then there's this whole other layer beyond that, which is, you think about the buyer, the individual, you know, how are they factoring in and you know, how, how does doing business with you help them on their development, um, help them with their career or even help their personal taste, And then there's this whole other thing about inspirational value and moving beyond, beyond sort of self and into social responsibility. And so um, we're, we're seeing that, you know, certainly the inspirational value and that that sort of transcendent value is, is everywhere these days. And, it, and we're actually pushing it to the forefront. I'm working right now with my colleagues on how do we bring sustainability to the forefront of these offerings? Because industrial companies can't show up at their customers anymore and not have a really authentic, compelling sustainability story it, as part of their value proposition. Hmm and and i think it's just a, a matter of months if not a handful of years before that's transferred into all business places technology you know healthcare things like that it's, it's certainly starting in industrials cuz cuz the the carbonization is is most pronounced there
0: and it's super fascinating because as you say there are so many factors that go into value for the customer right it's not only products and benefits and uh, and, and their solution because their competitor can probably offer very similar products and services. But it's also, as you said, other intangible things like ease of doing business, also the market context. Who else are they thinking about in their competitive set when they think about their products or service offering? It may be another direct competitor. It may be just doing nothing at all. So thinking about how that product feeds into their, you know, all the areas of value that the customer is taking into consideration when making a buying decision, which there are, a number of, um, you identified 40 of them, but it's super fascinating to understand that actually there are all of these other intangible sources of value that also are equally very valuable and play a huge role when it comes to making a final decision. Exactly. And in, in, you said equally,
1: in, and, and what our research shows is actually those harder to measure ones, those more quote unquote irrational ones, those actually are weighted higher in the consideration set. Hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, not only are they are they important, they're, they're actually more important. And, Fascinating. uh, yeah, it, 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 companies just aren't geared to think about it this way. They're not geared to, I, I think you would be shocked. I continue to be just surprised every day at the amount of innovation that's done just sort of inside out. And, uh, People sitting at a whiteboard or in a lab and and coming up with an idea and and sort of throwing it over the wall to the market and and seeing if it works.
0: Seeing what happens. Well, that leads me to my next question, really, uh, which you've kind of partly answered, but which elements of value matter most? Are there some that are just higher priority? Yeah, I mean, certainly the individual elements, the ones higher up
1: around um, sort of that, that second agenda that people have as, in, as individual buyers, um, that ease of doing business layer is, and if, I don't, if you don't have the framework in front of you, it's a little hard to see, but um, all those things about productivity and relationship and, and operations, um, you know, that, that is where we're seeing a lot of innovation happening right now, particularly as, as companies think about how do they digitize more and more parts of their business processes? And in, in the offers themselves, you know, I think those are the the value elements that are really getting unlocked. Mm. And so we we see this as being kind of a great framework for innovation. The the traditional model of innovation was, you know, come up with ideas and and see what sticks. This says, well, there's only 40 things that matter, and and play with the play with the Legos mm. that matter at the beginning. And um, and we're seeing more of those higher level things really really baking into into the most compelling value props.
0: Really interesting. Last question on this before we move on. You published the study in 2018. In the intervening four years, what's changed in the elements of value? What developments or insights have you? Would you have preferred to add in with the knowledge of hindsight? <laughs> yeah, great question.
1: It, we, so we've actually done some testing on that, and we've we've tested um, some other elements to see if they sort of rise to the level statistically, and and in fact they don't what we do see is that the relative importance changes and and at peak COVID, um boy we saw a flight to relationship we saw a flight to quality we we saw a flight to um, risk reduction and so i think that's what we see is that the the relative weighting of these things uh it, it shifts and and has shifted um and then i think the you know that's cyclical COVID will go the structural one i think is is more to that top and more of that a purpose-driven economy and you know again sustainability and sort of human equity issues are are sort of at the fore of that and i think we'll see other other issues rise up to that level and, and continue to be at the top of
0: agendas of, of customers and that's why that's why it should matter to companies because it matters to customers makes complete sense let's talk a little bit about bain and and actually what we can learn from the big two management consultancies what what can enterprise b2b Businesses such as the ones that we deal with on a regular basis and agencies, actually, what can we all learn from the way that management consultancies such as Bain operate? Interesting question. Well, uh, there's actually a lot of things you wouldn't want to take from,
1: <laughs> <laughs> from how we manage our right. business. It's a, it's kind of a peculiar business and it has its own idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, one of the things that I do think we get right is is human capital and um you know, we've always been in the business of finding talent, recruiting talent, developing talent, nurturing talent and keeping talent engaged, energized, excited. And that I think, you know, that's always been our business. I think that's becoming everyone's business now. And I, I do think we're, we're, we're pretty good at that. Um, I saw this uh, great study the other day, which was talking about um, technology pricing models. And they were talking about subscription versus consumption. And, um, and the thesis was, and it, it was born out in the data, that um, consumption-based pricing models actually have better enterprise value. And that was because when you're buying something based on a, a daily consumption decision, the product better be pretty good. Mm. And that, that kind of is the way we've run our business forever, which is we, <laughs> we have a value proposition for our, our employee base, and they're picking... Um, maybe not every day, but boy, they're picking every quarter or every year. You know, do they want to keep working here? Do they want to go somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And so the bar is high and we have to deliver on that. And it's not, you know, I think like the easy solves are things you can throw money at, right? Mm. Like uh, better food in the kitchen and, you know, massages and, you know, sort of all of those tennis, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And look like who doesn't love table tennis, right? (laughs) Like, well, (laughs) <laughs> we'll take that.
0: Nice coffee machine.
1: Exactly, exactly. But that's not what gets people to stick around. And right. and what gets people to stick around, the reason I stuck around Bain for 17 years is I can point to 10 people, you know, between, you know, 2 and 10 years my senior, who have taken a real vested interest in me and have helped train me and develop me and been with, with me in the hard times and been with me in the good times. And I can point to 10 people, um, or more that, that I've done that for. And, um, and I think that's the power, the, the power of the model is sort of this, just, there's sort of like mentorship at scale is built into our whole business model. And I think that level of human connection and, uh, personal development, um, sort of sp- sponsorship and personal development is just incredibly powerful.
0: So a real focus on human capital, absolutely fascinating. Let's let's talk about digital transformation. You've seen a, a ton of clients go through a lot of digital transformation, especially in the last 18 months, as you've just said, 10 years of digital transformation in like a year. What's your biggest tip for digital transformation and, and what things do you spend your time advising your clients about?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so I'm going to show my age a little bit here. I remember being in a corporate office in 1990 probably 899 somewhere in that in that period and I was an intern so I'm not, I'm not that old but I remember <laughs> a, an executive leader saying um, we got to get some of this internet stuff it's gonna be big <laughs> and uh, well she and she of course was right um, but there was no grid right there was no sense of what it was how it worked um and how to apply it and i I think that's a little bit the analog of where we are with digital and 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 honestly the world has evolved a lot on this front in the last probably two to three years i think but um boy there were a lot of companies two years ago saying we need digital we've got a you know like it was sort of pixie dust that you could (laughs) sprinkle on a business and you know it would magically be better so and so you know sort of let's extrapolate that i think Transformations that are framed as digital transformations are probably destined to fail business transformations that have a strong component of digital inside them can be very powerful. Uh, And so, you know, there have been quite a few pretty high profile failure stories of enterprises that spent a ton of money on digital offices and digital officers, and it was something that was done to the business. And it just missed, right? Because it, it, it wasn't a critical path for the business. It wasn't zeroed in on what customers cared about. And the ones that have succeeded are are, are native, are natively digital. Our business leaders that are doing it by the business within the business, and sort of getting it to maybe mix metaphors, sort of doing it the source code of their own business and getting that digital in there. So that, that's where we've seen it. Um, Julie Sweet, the CEO of Accenture said something pretty provocative, which was if if you have a digital practice, it means you don't know what digital is, because huh. digital just should be inside of all your practices at this point.
0: It should just be all of your practices. Fascinating. Exactly. So
1: I think the other thing in that is it kind of gets back to that that first point on the the time scale and the the pace of of business. Um, you know, I, I came to Bain to do strategy. And when I came to Bain to do strategy, it was, you know, we always talked about where to play and how to win. And um, we spent a lot of time on where to play. We spent a lot of time doing market research studies and figuring out growth rates and CAGRs and total address and market size. And, and it was probably sort of 80-20, well, where to play, how to win. And I think what, what I've seen in my time at Bain, you know, pushing up on the better part of two decades now is that it's shifted. And it's, the where to play is a, is a lot easier. A lot of that information that I worked hard as an analyst to create out of whole cloth is now just sort of available cheaply or freely on the internet and um
0: right but boy the how to
1: win is is hard
0: so what goes into how to win is that the go-to-market strategy is that all of the nuts and bolts of implementation yeah it's 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 all of that it's
1: it's the whole go-to-market value chain from what's our strategy what's our product offerings like how are we going to win the market what are we going to build How do we tell that story? Mm. How do we get out there and bring that story to market? How do we sell it in a way that it can be product led discovered or, or seller assisted or seller led? How do I put customer success on the back end of that and drive adoption and consumption? And how does that sort of create a platform that, um, that drives expansion and seeing how to make that whole model work is, is really hard. Um, I spent a lot of time with my clients uh, on, I call it value that gets trapped in the seams or maybe a better way to put it is that the corporate game of telephone <laughs> where, you know, the game of telephone you whispering around the ear yeah. in the ear around the circle and you get a right. totally different message. Well, I think most corporations work that way. Um, you know, the strategy team comes up with something and they tell it to the product team who then tells it to product marketing, who then tells it to, mm content, who then tells it to the marketing uh, uh, launch team, field marketing, that then gets it to sellers. And boy, a lot gets lost in that. (laughs) A lot gets lost in that. Hmm. Um, So that, you know, figuring out how to do that at speed and scale. I, I cannot tell you how many clients I've talked to in the last year who've said, we have a product marketing problem. And the reason they say that is because product marketing is what sits between product and sales. Hmm. And I said, well, you might have a product marketing problem. You might have a product and sales alignment problem. You might have a strategy problem. And so the solution, the easy solution is to just throw another specialized function at something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, let's throw five product marketers at this and see if it, it works. But they're just going to be another note of complexity um, if, if you don't actually have a good, simple story that can, that can flow through your whole go-to-market value chain. And so to me, that's, that's a lot of what we talk about is in the how to win, is how do you get all those functions lined up? You know, I, I think about it sometimes with a metaphor I'll use is a, is a pipe. And you want that pipe, like, you know, you want those six links of the pipe to be straight and fast and water to, to flow through them. And oftentimes the pipe is straight and then bent and then missing right. and then bent the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you just get a trickle out the other side.
0: That's uh, my garden.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the metaphor. I th- I think it def- it's definitely apt and it it definitely works, especially with with the amount of complexity that you're dealing with with you know some of the largest largest companies in the world. I think it's ap- absolutely fascinating. Just bringing the the interview towards a close now. What would you say or what advice would you give to aspiring sort of brand technology leaders? On how best to navigate their careers especially within sort of a a large consultancy or or sort of technology business which is generally the sort of clients that, that we work with what advice would you give them on how best to navigate their careers if they want a similar trajectory to yourself
1: yeah great great question um i mean the first one is like do the job you have today and, and sort of know the second and third order issues. There's that, the, that great Toyota exercise of the five whys. And if you ask you know the question why five times, you'll, you'll, you'll get to the right answer and you'll, you'll probably get it on the second or third one.
0: Sure.
1: And uh, there's too many people that don't know the second or third why of their own job. Hmm. And um, so sort of knowing, you know, why this, why now, why me, why not them? All of those are so important. And so just sort of immerse yourself in what you're doing. Um, And when you do that, you buy options. Hmm. And so, you know, what I've seen is that successful business leaders were successful individual contributors who someone took notice of and said, boy, if I gave that person more resources, they would do better. (laughs) And so by doing your job well, you're buying options every day. Um, And then I think the last one is, you know, Like when you buy those options, the doors will swing open, Uh, but sometimes they won't swing open. Sometimes you have to push them open a little bit. And so, you know, when you have conviction about that door you want to walk through, just find a way to do it. Uh, There's a there was a great that that show comedians in cars with with Jerry Seinfeld. I love it.
0: Great show. Him and
1: Alec Baldwin. Did you see the one with Alec Baldwin?
0: I didn't see that one. No, it's on my list.
1: Well, so they're, they're sort of joking. And these are two guys in their 60s looking back at their life and talking about, you know, when they're young. And they said, yeah, you know, when I was in my 20s, I just sat there waiting for the Bureau of Undiscovered Talent to call me. <laughs> and like, oh, is this Jerry Seinfeld? We're from the Bureau of Undiscovered Talent. No, like, we want to make you a star. And like, you know, obviously the joke is there is no Bureau of Undiscovered Talent. Sure. Yeah, there's points
0: in your career where you have to
1: say that, you know, this is the door I want to swing open. This is the door I want to kick open.
0: And you have to push it yourself and, and go through it yourself.
1: Exactly. Fascinating.
0: I love that. Buy options. Absolutely love that. That I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna steal that one if you don't mind.
1: That's all yours.
0: (laughs) Jamie, thank you so much for being a guest on the show.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me and uh, it's been fun.
0: If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of client side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please email Zoe at Fox.agency. The people that make the show possible are Jennifer Brennan, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibarba. You've been listening to ClientSide from Fox Agency. Join us next time on ClientSide, brought to you by Fox Agency.